Well, good morning, church. Oh, let's try that again. Good morning, church. There we go. It is great to be with you this morning. My name is DJ. I'm the associate minister here at the Summit. Again, if you are new this morning, we are so glad that you are here. As we continue in our series on the gospel of Mark, uh, let me get something out of the way real quick. My wife, Diana, asked me yesterday if I was going to tell a, a Chiefs story or Super Bowl story. You guys know where I stand. And some of you have already tried to hurt me today. And you know who you are, Kim Cochran. And it's not going to work, all right? It's not going to work. No, uh, we are so glad that you were here. If you have your Bibles, we're going to jump right into Mark chapter 14 this morning. Mark 14. You can also follow along the summitstl.info slash notes. We are getting closer to the end of this journey that we've been in for uh, over the last year uh, through the Gospel of Mark, really trying to understand and grasp the mission of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, um, and then who he has called us to be in light of what he has done on our behalf. And so we're in this last leg, as Brian said, we're in the last few hours of Jesus's life uh, before the cross um, that will take us now to Easter, where we get to celebrate the resurrection um, together. And I do want to say right out of the gate, I'm going to give you one application of this sermon right here at the beginning. One of the applications here is to join us on Wednesday for our worship night. That, that we're looking at a text here, and, and this is very intentional. There's a lot of interconnectedness between what we're going to see here in Mark chapter 14 and what we're about to observe and participate in in this season of Lent. And as Brian said, we uh, spend so much time, our, our culture, our broader church culture, spends so much time preparing for Christmas, which is great. I love that. And really focusing on Advent and getting our, ourselves right and, and, and realizing what we're celebrating at Christmas time. And, and church, I'll be honest, I think we can do a lot better at really preparing ourselves and our hearts and reflecting to Easter. And so that's what this season of Lent is. Is about. And so wherever you're coming in with that, and I know when we say that, depending on your background, maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't, maybe you know it in one certain way, I just want to say that's the point. The point is to reflect, to look within, and also in light of that, to look at what Jesus came to do for you and for me. So we're going to unpack a lot of that today in Mark chapter 14, but I just want you to know I would love for you to come and join us on Wednesdays. We kick off this season together in a really powerful, very impactful way. Um, as we've said several times over the last year and a half or so, there are really two words within this series on Mark that we're focusing on, and those are disrupt and reset. That when we looked at the first half of the book of Mark, we were really looking at uh, Jesus disrupting things, disrupting systems, disrupting ideas. But we talked about a while ago that what's beautiful about the gospel is, yes, it does disrupt us, but it doesn't leave us disrupted. It resets us into something more firm, more solid than we were standing on before. And so this last half of Mark's gospel really is this reset, this mission of Jesus to reset us on God's truth, on God's compassion, on God's glory, on his forgiveness, on his faithfulness, etc. And so again, I, I want to ask you, as we have several times in this series, would you be so bold 
to pray for God's disruption. Both this morning and in the season that we're about to enter. Would you pray asking God in humility and in faith, Lord, disrupt the areas of my life and of my heart that are standing on something other than you, that are standing on a sandy foundation so that you can experience the power of the gospel that transforms you and transplants you on God's foundation of stone and his truth and his presence and grace and goodness. So with that said, let's pray this morning. Awesome God, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. What we are not, please make us. In Jesus' name, amen. You remember your first experience in a church setting? I want you to think about that for just a second. Some of you, you don't have to go back very far. Some of you have to go way back. But I want you to think, can you put yourself back there, your very first time that you entered into a service like this or some type of church service? If you've been around the summit for any length of time, you've heard bits and pieces of my story, but I did not grow up going to church. That wasn't really part of our regular rhythm. It didn't start really attending church regularly until late into my high school career. And I do remember, I was thinking a lot about this, there are so many different forms of church. There are so many different ways that different churches do things. And I think if we've been around church for a long period of time, we forget how foreign some of those things used to be to us. Right? I remember going into a church and experiencing things like where they would pass the offering basket. The church that I went to, it, had, it was a really fancy, like, longer burger basket. <laughs> Some of you know what I'm talking about. Others are like, I don't know what that is. It's a really fancy basket that people pay a lot of money for. But I remember this basket being, and I'll confess, as a high school student, I was like, so wait, is this like, if you have extra, put it in. If you need extra, take it out. Like, what? <laughs> I just want to be clear on the rules. I don't really know what's happening here. And then as I started going around a little bit, started attending youth group and uh, different things, I, I learned there was this other element that I, was really foreign to me. Every song, it seemed, came with these very specific hand motions. <laughs> he came from heaven to earth to shine away. So you guys know what I'm talking about. Like, if you know, you know, right? And I was thinking, listen, I don't listen. At that point, I didn't, I didn't listen to a lot of Christian music, and it didn't come with those kind of hand motions. And so that was weird to me. And then I remember sitting there as they started passing the communion tray. I remember my first experience is this, this tray is being passed, and I had no idea what was really happening. I didn't know what was going on. I, I get this tray that had all these little, you know, small glasses of juice around it, and it had these little tablets. They looked like Pez tablets. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you know, right? Like some people do crackers, some people do, you know, like the wafers. No, these were like tablets, like a pill. And I'm like, what? What is going on? And so I took the tray and I just kind of passed it to the next person. Like, I don't, I'm, I'm not ready. I don't know. 
But what was interesting about that, again, this is my first experience, is there was this feeling within the room that this was a very sacred moment. And that even though I didn't understand it, there was something here that I wanted to understand. And so as I started going to church more and started getting into the Word more and started talking to different people more, I learned that even though churches have a lot of different forms of these things, all the things that were being practiced were deeply rooted in biblical values, except for maybe hand motions. <laughs> I'm not anti-hand motion. Let me be clear on that. But I started to learn, okay, I see this picture, and it was, it was really blurry, and it would become clearer and clearer and clearer the more that you journey on, but it was this moment of communion each and every week that really started to draw me in. That even still today, this moment of coming to the table, this moment of, of taking the bread and taking the juice, is still having this profound impact as I continue to grow deeper and deeper in my understanding of what that is. And the reason I tell you all that is this. In this text, in Mark chapter 14, the disciples are experiencing a lot of the same thing. That, that Jesus, even though the disciples had this kind of picture of what they were doing, it was still very foggy. And what Jesus is about to do is he's going to radically disrupt what the disciples thought they knew, and he's going to reset them into something much, much greater. And so here's what I want to do in our text. I, I want to break it down into three sections. And so we'll look at the first part of our text this morning. Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 12, says this, And on the first day of unleavened bread... When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. The disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So I, I want to break this down into to three sections, and I, I think this is really important for us to, to build on this, because the first thing that we have to look at here to really understand what Jesus is doing is we have to look at what was the central focus of the Passover for the disciples and the Israelites at that time. And I think it was this. It was remembering that God has redeemed Israel. But that was the focus. God has redeemed Israel. Passover is a very significant event in this time period. It's one of the biggest celebrations in all of history for the Jews. And, and we don't have a, a lot of time to go into it, but, but there were even feasts within this feast, festivals within this festival, if you will, that this was not just one meal, this was multiple days 
of celebrating and reflecting. And at the very center of it, what what the Israelites were called to remember is the most divine act that God had ever accomplished for them up until that point. And that was bringing God's people out of slavery from Egypt. That the focus of this heralds back to the events of Exodus. And what's interesting about this is that whether you've grown up in church or not, you probably know somewhat of what I'm talking about. Right? Either through Charleston Heston or through Val Kilmer. You've seen a movie on this. The Prince of Egypt, arguably one of the best movie soundtracks of all time. And so most people have an idea of what this event was. But the focus is calling the Israelites back, remembering the plagues that God had to bring upon Egypt because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart to deliver his people, culminating in that tenth and final plague that God said, I'm going to send the angel of death throughout Egypt. And he's going to take the life of every firstborn. It's this very somber, truly horrific Event. But, but the beauty in it and what the Israelites are, are remembering here is that God, though he has to bring his judgment on sin, that God still provides a way for his people to be redeemed. And if you go back, you look in the book of Exodus, God gives very specific instructions to Moses. He says, go and tell my people, I'm making a way for them. I'm making a provision for them that anyone who will go and sacrifice a young lamb, put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, that when the angel of death comes through and he sees that blood on the door, the wrath of God will be appeased and will pass over you. There's a lot of other instructions that the people had to do. But but the point is this. For 1,500 years now, the people of God have celebrated this moment in the exact same way, year after year after year. They were looking back at God's judgment on Egypt, at the redemption through the blood of the Lamb, and ultimately about God delivering the people out of Egypt. Again, very somber, but very celebratory moment. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy, it, it tells us, God instructs the people, he says, you, if you want to observe this meal, if you want to celebrate Passover, you have to be in Jerusalem. You could not be outside of the walls. If you were a Jew and you wanted to celebrate Passover, you could not be outside of the walls of Jerusalem to celebrate. And so you can imagine just the, the, the chaos almost that is happening within the city in Jesus' time. That we don't know exactly how many people are there at this moment, but years later, they actually, the government does a sort of head count of people. And they come up with about two to three million people are within the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem is not meant to hold that many people. So you can imagine just the packness and and the chaos and the noise. But one side note that I love about this is in God's divine providence, Jesus finds a private room 
away from the chaos, away from the noise, away from the crowds, to have this very intimate moment with the disciples. In a way that he's going to disrupt what they've been doing for 1,500 years. And so here's what I want to do as we go through this. I want us to pay careful attention to what Jesus is about to say. Because it's what he says that really redefines this moment. Hang with me for just a little bit because I just want to give us a little more background here. Because again, it's important to understand what Jesus is doing. And we have to understand how they understood it. There were four parts or four movements of this meal. And each segment or each movement would end with the drinking of a specific cup. So there were four different cups that the facilitator would drink from, signifying this is the end of that movement of this meal. And here, here they are. So it's the cup of sanctification. That's the first cup. And what the cup of sanctification did is it represented the promise of God that he will bring his people out of Egypt and set them apart that he will sanctify them. You will be my people and I will be with you as your God. And then the next movement would end with the drinking of the cup of deliverance. And what this cup represented was the promise of God that he would deliver them from slavery, that no longer would they have to carry this yoke of affliction upon themselves, that God would bring them out. And the third cup, the cup of redemption, symbolizing that the promise that God would deliver them through the blood of a lamb, that it wouldn't be because of anything that they have done, wouldn't be because of their power, wouldn't be because of their merit, but it would be because of him and who he is and his power and goodness and grace alone. And then the meal would conclude with the drinking of this final cup, the cup of restoration, and this was the promise that one day God would restore his relationship with his people. Again, all of this designed, all of these movements, this entire moment was designed to this point to make Israel look back and see what God had done for them. Until Mark 14, verse 17. Now, really quick, there's some verses that we're going to skip over. 18 through 21, it's a reference uh, to Judas's betrayal, and there's a lot there, but for the sake of time, we don't have, to have time to unpack it all. But I do want you to remember, Judas at this point has already agreed to betray Jesus. He already, he's already knows what he's going to do, and at this point, he's really kind of becoming a scout as to where will Jesus be so that he can report that. And then John tells us in his gospel that about halfway through this meal, so probably between the cup of deliverance and the cup of redemption, Judas actually gets up and leaves. So he will never experience what's about to happen here. He leaves halfway through. And then we get to verse 22. It says this, And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. 
And then Jesus took the cup, and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, and they drank of it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Extremely powerful moment just happened. Jesus takes the bread. It's known as the bread of affliction. Again, for 1,500 years, they would take this bread and they would break it. And so we know that they're about three-fourths of the way through this meal. They're coming up on that third cup, the cup of redemption. But Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it. But then he says something. And this is where he starts to go off script from how they've done this for 1,500 years. Is when he breaks the bread, he says, take, this is my body. And in that moment, Jesus had 100% attention from the disciples. Because what he is saying is that for 1,500 years, you've taken this bread of affliction and you've broken it. And what I'm telling you is for 1,500 years, this bread was a shadow of me. It was a shadow, it was a marker pointing to the Messiah that would come and have his body broken for your affliction. And I'll be honest with you, I doubt the disciples really understood it. And frankly, if we were on that side of the cross, I doubt we would have as well. Right? It's easy for us to grasp this because we're on the other side. Yeah, we can see, oh yeah, we got it. They're like, what, what now? I, what did he say? Hold on. Can we time out? And this is extremely unfamiliar to everything the disciples knew. But what Jesus is doing echoes back to so many pieces of the Old Testament scripture, specifically Isaiah 53, where Isaiah prophesies and says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. And Jesus is saying, this bread was talking about me. This verse in Isaiah was talking about me. And before they can even ask questions, before they can even really comprehend what's happening, Jesus takes that third cup. He takes the cup of redemption, and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And at this point, the disciples are probably like, not again, what? Hold on, what? Because there's two things, I think, that the disciples really understood, specifically about that third cup, that Jesus is disrupting and resetting all in the same moment. First, they understood that this cup represents the blood of the sacrificed lamb from back in Egypt. 
that that is what redeemed the people. But Jesus is saying, no, no, the whole time, this cup, this cup of redemption represented my blood that will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That, that no longer will you celebrate, when you take this meal, no longer will you celebrate the blood of a lamb that appeased the angel of death that went through Egypt. But now when you take this cup, you will celebrate my blood that was shed for you that appeases God's wrath because of your sin. This blood that purchases your life. Jesus, in a way that only he can do, disrupts and resets 1,500 years of tradition in two sentences, showing that now what this meal looks at is that God has redeemed you. God has redeemed you. Friends, this is no longer. This is no longer about God releasing the Israelites from the bond of slavery in Egypt. That was just a, a microcosm, if you will, of, of the greater plan that God had. It's now about the bloodshed that released you from the bondage of sin and death. It's no longer about pointing back to what God did in Egypt, but it's pointing to the sufficiency of God to save you from your spiritual bondage, from your flesh that we have no power to overcome outside of ourselves. Jesus came to release us from the enemy's grasp, to purchase our lives, to bridge the gap, to restore communion between us and God. One of the things that I've loved about going on this journey through Mark is you begin to see how pieces of this really connect with one another. And as I was looking at this, I really went back to what John the Baptist said way early on in Mark when Jesus comes to be baptized. And what does John say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the first thing the disciples would have understood. The second thing, though, has to do with the covenant. And what Jesus does when he takes that point is he gives them a new covenant that up until this point, they were under what's called the old covenant. Going back to the covenant made with Moses by God on Mount Sinai, and he gives them the Ten Commandments. And there's a lot of other things in there. But these represent God's holiness and God's character and God's desire to be with his people. God's desire to be present with his people. And he basically says, hey, do these things and you will be blessed. You will have life and we will be in communion together. Don't do them and you will be cursed. And you will, there will be death and we will not be able to be in communion with each other. I don't know, some of you, maybe you're doing a, a yearly Bible plan you've reached that point of, of the year where you're somewhere, Leviticus, Numbers, somewhere in there. How's that going? <laughs> can be a little rough, right? I get it. But here's what I, I want to challenge you. If, if you're there, I want to challenge you in that. 
the, the last half of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, yes, there's, there's a lot of things there that you're like, wait, why do I need to know this? Why do I need to understand this? And what I would argue is what we need to understand in that moment is the very heart of God. That the heart of God is to be with his people. The heart of God is to be among his people, for them to experience his presence, to be in communion with his people. And the character of God is so holy, so perfect, so good, that no sin, no uncleanliness can be in his presence. And so God lays out, okay, here's what we have to do. Because of your sin and your wickedness and, and, and the fall, here's what we have to do in order that we can be in communion with each other. But the other thing that we learn time and time and time again is for the Israelites, they can't measure up. They cannot do what God has required. Look in the book of Numbers. God lays out, here's, okay, here's what we need to do. Israelites sit off, and it's like the next sentence, they're complaining. They're grumbling, and they want to go back to Egypt. And so we're shown over and over again, okay, we can't measure up to be able to make ourselves right to be in the presence of God. Which is why Jesus takes this third cup. And he said, this represents a new covenant. The old covenant has been fulfilled, right? Jesus says that. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So all those things that you can't measure up to, it's okay, because I did. And he says, so now this is the blood of a new covenant. Jeremiah, he says that there's a day coming when God will no longer write his law on tablets but he will write it on the hearts of his people. That no longer will we look at these laws and think, okay, I have to do these things to please God. But actually, we'll look at what God calls us to do and we'll want to do them because God has already been pleased. Really is this truth that's echoed here that we love because he first loved us. So we have this new covenant established by the blood of Jesus that is now offered to us by grace and accepted through faith. And what I love about what's happening here is that there's a disruption and a reset. There's a transfer that up until this moment, you looked at this meal and you looked at God's heart through the lens of the Exodus. But now there's a reset saying that from this point forward, you're going to take this meal and you're going to look at God's heart through the lens of the cross, through what Jesus has done, through his body being broken his blood being shed. Then there's one final section that I don't want us to miss. Verse 25 says this, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom 
of God. And friends, I, I don't want us to miss this component because this is, this is kind of our instructions now going forward. As I said at the beginning, these, I think, apply when we're at the table and also in this season of Lent that we're about to participate in. And I've been asked several times throughout the years, hey, why do we take communion? What's, what's the point? What's the significance? I've thought a lot about that, and there's a lot of different answers there, but I think what it all comes down to is there's four primary reasons that I would argue that we take communion. And one of them is we're looking back. We are looking back. And there's a, there's a moment where we need to look back and remember what it was like to be in the bondage of sin. Where we look back and remember what it was like to be a people without hope. What it was like to try to redeem and save ourselves. And in this moment of remembrance, yes, it is somber. Lent is a somber season, but there's also a component that's very celebratory. Because it's when we realize where we were that we can celebrate and appreciate what Jesus has done on our behalf. Second aspect of this is we are looking present I like how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. He says that we're saved and we're sealed. But where there is sin, there is broken fellowship. There is broken communion with God. And so part of communion, a big part of the, the season of Lent, is asking the Holy Spirit to bring those things to light in us. To show us where we need to ask for forgiveness, where we need to repent, where we need to walk with the Spirit in restoration. It really is that moment of asking God to disrupt and reset us, knowing that he can because of what Christ has done. Third component then is we're looking forward. And I would add, we're looking forward with anticipation. And sometimes I think we forget the anticipation part. But looking at Mark chapter 14, verse 25, scholars debate on both sides of, you know, did Jesus drink of the fourth cup? At this meal, did Jesus drink from the cup of restoration? And I don't know. But I think it doesn't really matter because I think... The point is the same. That what Jesus is talking about is he's saying what Revelation 19 calls the marriage supper of the Lamb is coming. That, friends, this is going to sound weird, but I believe this. When you come to the table every week, I hope there's a part of you that's like, Lord, I don't want to take a Costco cracker and dip it in some Costco juice anymore. I want to sit at your table. And I want to have the bread at your table. And I want to drink from the cup at your table. Because that's the picture of Revelation 19. Where we get to sit with the Father and the Son and the Spirit around the table. And we get to feast in this restored kingdom. 
Then there's the last component. And I would argue this is the one that sometimes we miss the most. You know, we talk a lot, and it's, it's very true. We have not been saved from something, or we, we haven't just been saved from something, uh, or for something. We've also been saved into something. There's a reason why we don't take this meal alone. There's a reason why we don't practice Lent, why we don't practice Advent alone. It's because we've been saved into something. Because we are part of a greater redemption story than just us. That it is about the redemption of the church, God's bride. And under this new covenant, when Jesus takes the cup, there are two components that we're then called to. One is baptism, and one is taking the Lord's Supper. And it's interesting, those two things, because baptism really is the mark, the declaration of the individual salvation, their moment where they've put their trust and faith completely in God and the work that he has done. But then we're also called to celebrate the Lord's Supper every time we gather, because that's this moment at the table that we're reminded that in this room there are all sorts of different leanings, different opinions, different personalities, different desires, fill in the blank. But it's through the blood of Jesus that we are united. And it's through Jesus that that becomes the only thing that matters, which then informs everything else. So friends, I pray that as we come to the table here in just a moment, as we begin our season of reflection over these next few weeks, I pray that we would look back, that we would look present, that with anticipation we would look forward, and as we gather, that we would realize that we've been saved into something by the blood of Jesus that brings unity and love to all who believe. Let's pray. God, we thank you for, for the cross. God, for your act of love and redemption for your blood that was poured out, for your body that was broken, to bring about the very thing that we so desire but have no ability to obtain within ourselves, our own salvation. So God, I pray for each one of us in this room, God, wherever we are, God, I pray your spirit to stir the message of the gospel that Jesus' body was broken, his blood was shed so that we could be in communion with you. God, may we realize today in this season and forevermore that we love because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.